America today, in business, government, and most elite institutional organizations, operates under a rubric many would describe as managerialism. It is a belief that the best results can be achieved through rigorous quantitative measurement and elimination of processes and people that do not measure up. It is a decidedly material approach to running a system, and in terms of total output, efficiency of inputs consumed, and other tangible attributes, it can result in improvements. But when it comes to things harder to measure, quality, happiness, and the spiritual direction of a people, management science, a contentious term in and of itself, often fails to deliver. Tonight we're joined by Henry Mencken to discuss how Taylorism, the movement that started it all, led America to win in war and peace, but lose on many of the fundamental human issues we all face when we get home at the proverbial end of the day. I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been ideal. Hello, welcome to the Myth of the 20th Century Podcast. I'm Hans Lander. Today I'm joined by the entire crew. We have Adam Smith. Hey. We have Hank Oslow. What's up, dudes? And we have Nick Mason. Hello. We are joined by uh, one of our favorite returning guests, Mankin. Hey, what's up, guys? And today we are bringing you a somewhat esoteric topic to many of you, I I would think, but it's an important one. Uh, Today we are discussing the history of management science, and we will endeavor to make that sound a lot more interesting than it uh, probably doesn't sound to you right now. But today, uh, I think we have a few announcements from Adam and Nick to go over. I just wanted to say real quickly, there were two people, I've been catching up on some backlog emails, and uh, Peter, I had uh, written to you a while back, uh, maybe you did not get my email, uh, it's okay if you didn't respond, but I use Tutanota, and so sometimes that is sent into the spam folder, so uh, check your spam folder to see if my email's there. Uh, and let me know if uh, you got it. Um, and then another individual wrote to me who is a teacher, and uh, I took me a while to get back to him. Sorry about that, but I also got back to you. So uh, you do the same. If you're, if my email is not in your inbox, check the spam folder. And I had a couple people who were kind enough to donate on Bitcoin. Uh, we got a, I think, recurring donation from whoever owns this wallet. Uh, I want to say, and especially grateful thank you uh, for some very generous donations this is coming from the wallet 2mcb and then we had another person uh who i think i corresponded with uh, so thank you uh but their bitcoin uh wallet starts with 15 ke thank you to both of you and then there's also someone who uh did want a book and then was also um telling us that they donated on patreon uh and they go by the title little wars um thank you and I would like to add as well, if anyone has who has 
written to me or is written to Adam and has not received a book, uh, I apologize. I think we got all of you, but if not, uh, please just send an, another message uh, and we'll make sure to sort that out for you. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, Mankin, uh, you you mentioned to us that someone had a question related to our show today. Uh, would you like to go over that? Yeah, um, this comes from a friend, Jack, who is a, uh, a very generous supporter of both my show and yours. Um, he had a number of questions, but the uh, the big one dealt with, he uh, he's asking to you directly, Adam. He says that uh, both Rebel Yell and Myth have discussed Nassim Taleb's concept of anti-fragile as a goal for the remnant of a declining empire. And he, these are his words, he says, my understanding is of anti-fragile is not just being resilient and able to absorb the shocks of disruptive events, but to gain advantage or thrive because of the shocks. Moving right. beyond individual prepping in the short of plan community, um, are there personal or family capital good investment or occupational strategies that work towards the goal of being anti-fragile? Well, I, this reminds me of when Nick and I were sort of discussing this on a previous show. I believe it was with uh, Dark Enlightenment, um, and it was about infrastructure, if, I, if, not, if I'm not mistaken. I'll put a link to uh, that show in the show notes uh, either way, if that's the show or not. But uh, what, uh, what we kind of talked about was, the, first of all, the concept of anti-fragile as opposed to something that is just kind of robust is it, it benefits from disruptions or typically a negative event that you would normally associate with being uh, costly, uh, and it does the opposite. So it, it gives you something uh, that is positive when there's something that bad that normally happens to most people. Um, in, in looking at this question a couple days ago, um, it just reminds me of how basically how difficult this question to answer is in general. But I did put a little thought to it. And what I would say is that if you want to benefit from something going wrong, first of all, like what exactly is that um, that you are talking about? And so the first thing I would say is that there's, there's an untold number of things that could happen in the future. And so I guess what you want to do is basically write down what you think the most likely things that are relevant to you that are going to happen. And then you start thinking about each one at a time and probably in order of importance. Uh, and so with regard to sort of the stuff that we were talking about with the guys from Rebel Yell about the colonies and things like that, basically the problem we're mainly addressing is that the system, the grid, the, the network, whatever you want to call it, that we all kind of depend on, the, the trade system, the legal system, all the stuff that we can't really get away from and we utilize it, but at the same time, it sort of controls us in many ways. Um, I think if that goes down, and I think that's kind of the general question about like what happens in a crisis or in a, God forbid, a civil war or something like that, what do you do? And then can you prepare something that actually sets you up to be in a good position? Um, in the, in the scenarios that a lot of people who are survivalists and preppers talk about with regard to things like uh, civil unrest or you know, urban riots or government uh, just basically going into non-existence or it's not functioning anymore and you basically have uh, general anarchy and lots of uh, street violence or basically there's no recourse with the government. Basically, you're on your own. What are you going to, uh, to need in that situation? And if you have it, can you actually profit from it? I mean, to use a somewhat crass term, but I would say that the simplest thing is you, you need to have stuff that people, other people are going to need. 
and that's typically stuff that people don't think about having. Um, most people are not really survivalist minded. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say, you know, have ammunition. You could trade for that. I think that's only in certain circumstances. I think if we're in a prolonged conflict, ammunition would be extremely valuable. No question about it. But in a short term disruption, um, and what that looks like is, again, I mean, you can just imagine a, a completely complicated tree of like what could what scenarios could happen. Like one event leads to another possible event, which could lead to many other possible scenarios. You really don't know where you're going to end up. But if you look at history, which is kind of what we try to do, uh, you typically see people having sort of similar problems. And that's typically food and water. So have food and water, things like that, and you can trade with that, and you could probably make quite a quite a bit of a, a return on that if suddenly things are in short supply. And so it's supply and demand. You know, you, it's an iron law of economics. You can't get away from that. And so if you have something that right now is actually fairly cheap to to accumulate, and you predict that this would be something that's highly in demand, but because of maybe supply chain disruptions or maybe it becomes illegal or something strange like that. If you have a way to, to have a, a good supply of that on hand, uh, you could trade with that and, and benefit from it. Longer term, and that's sort of a short term thing, uh, what Nick and I have talked about in the past and sort of debating this, like what does it really you know, solve if we all just kind of like leave the system and then become non-entities to the system that seems to want to oppress and destroy us if, if at worst. Um, what does it really mean if we just withdraw from that? Are we winning? And, you know, arguably we're not. But um, what I would sort of envision is that if you've got a, a network of people, uh, not just yourself, but if you have people that are trained and, and ready to actually cooperate and work as a unit, sort of like in a military sense, uh, but also in sort of a practical sense of being able to have people who are specialized in certain areas where they can help each other in, in certain situations, like somebody's a medical expert, somebody knows how to repair vehicles, another person has a farm and they can you know grow food. If you have a, a pre preset selection of, of people that are cooperating and in sort of a community already, and nobody else has even thought to think about doing something like that, like most Americans, like most people who live in suburbs and urban areas where they basically, they, they take the highways, the, the government sort of legal system provides the framework for which they make money and they're taxed for it, blah, blah, blah. If you've already set up a, a, a trade network of people who have the essentials, you are going to be a shining beacon of prosperity and power in a relative sea of disaster, uh, for lack of a better term. And that, in essence, will just automatically put you ahead of everybody else. And I think that is the, the beginnings of what we could potentially see if the, if the United States falls apart. Uh, if there are groups of people that are already functioning like Rebel Yell's Identity Dixie does and what some other groups in America are doing, uh, we would become leaders and that's political power. And so I think that would be the next step in the medium to long term to rebuilding something that's better than our current system. So I don't know if that, that really gave you any easy answers, but I don't think it's an easy <laughs> question. 
I think that's a very good answer, and uh, I'll definitely, when I'm talking to our benefactor again, discuss this if he has any elaboration, but I agree. I mean, ultimately, the anti-fragile thing, the thing you can do beyond just simple resilience is build things that offer alternatives so that when uh, the primary is not there, the primary solution is not there, you benefit by gaining loyalty from people that you help. Yes. Yeah, I, I would just add to that. I think that uh, in possible scenarios of, of American futures, the way that you're going to deal with just generic red state proles is not going to be by propagandizing to them or reasoning with them. It's going to be in that very real capacity of what you can deliver to secure their loyalty or cooperation. I agree. So, do we want to get to the uh, topic at hand here? Yes, yeah, what I'm is Hans? Why don't you bring us in? What is the topic at hand? The topic at hand today is primarily a discussion of a book that Mencken recommended called The Management Myth. Uh, more broadly, the topic at hand is the discussion of management science, uh, I suppose, man managerialism really in a, in a post-war sense, although we will go into sort of the proto-history of managerialism with a review of Frederick Taylor's uh, principles of scientific management theory. But, uh, Mencken, maybe you can kind of bring up why you were interested initially in this book, The Management Myth, and uh, its larger impact on sort of general American history. Yeah, um, so I'd start off with, as we said, the primary source, The uh, I think the unifying source is uh, Matthew Stewart's uh, The Management Myth, but uh, definitely this won't be a single source episode because it, there's all kinds of related things that will come into the discussion. Um, the biggest reason I uh, thought it was important is – Matthew Stewart does a good job looking beyond the the curtain, as it were, as it is, as it were, of the uh, the managerial class, without uh, falling in into any kind of reflexive teenage tear, you know, saying that it's just all bad man and we need some kind of alternative plan system or anarchy or whatever. Um, but he does address the uh, the development of the management class, the managerial class, in the process and. Um, Beginning with Taylor, especially, I mean, it, the point that needs to be understood is fundamentally this whole field, this whole study of uh, management sciences, and I would say sciences in air quotes, ultimately, this is the class that is the ruling class of the 21st century. And uh, beginning with Taylor and uh, a lot of material that he essentially just made up the data with to uh, fit the the conclusions he had started with, you know, Taylor could effectively be called the man who created the current managerial class of the world. Well, if I could give a short introduction to Taylorism, um, I'd be happy to, if that's, that's interesting. It's a, it's a field that I studied uh, to a degree in school. And even then as you know, if somebody who's going to choose a field of study is obviously kind of, passionate about it to a degree. Even then, I, I sort of looked at it with some degree of skepticism because of how it was tied to making, especially in, in the manufacturing and heavy industry uh, sectors of the economy, uh, trying to make everything quantitative and then applying that to what is 
largely a service-based economy today. That, that, was what, that was the beginning of my skepticism because the people that I would hear talking about Taylorism in the sort of modern uh, arena was it sounded very odd to me because Taylorism came out of basically this guy's work at the Bethlehem Steel Mills, and he was uh-huh. doing uh, projects that were related to very measurable things. I mean, he, he was sort of, uh, I think he was the person who, who phrased it this way. He's like, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Well, in in high technology, uh, to sort of jump ahead, uh, or a lot of other sort of relatively comp- more complicated fields, other than basically just blast furnaces and steel uh, coming out, rolling it, cutting it, dividing it up, uh, that's very like arithmetic. Like you can you can count things, and it's it's very measurable. But if you jump ahead to something like software development, uh, or even management consulting, which is sort of what this book is about that this guy wrote. Uh, you, can't, you can't quantify these things so easily because you're dealing with things that are fundamentally different every time you do them. You're not dealing with a repetitive manufacturing process. Uh, you could sort of do this to a degree in farming because you have seasons and there's a lot of re- repetition. But without that repetition, the statistics are meaningless. And so that's where I sort of my main skepticism of sort of... Uh, the kind of management sciences and the the Taylorism in particular uh, in the modern sense uh, comes from. But where it began, I actually do think there was something to be said for it from a pure business logic point of view. There are two weaknesses to it, though. And, and for just, I'll start with the positives, though. Um, I think it's, it's very reasonable to basically look at a, a, a process that is going over and over and over again, and you're basically on an assembly line or something like that, and try to measure how long it takes, how, many, how much you're, you're producing, how much you input to produce that output. Efficiency is defined by output divided by input. And if you're getting more output for the same amount of input, that's, that's an objective improvement. And I think that's fine. And you should measure things in a way where that makes sense. Uh, but where it doesn't make sense is, again, where you have all this complexity. Uh, when you have things that basically you, you can't put them into these rigid buckets. Uh, and the other thing that I think the MBA sort of philosophy has, you know, as it's overtaken the United States, essentially, uh, this book cited some good statistics on this. Uh, when the author was first uh, looking at you know, the MBA field, there were only about 17,000 awarded in the United States per year. I think it was in the 1970s. And then by somewhere in the 2000s, there were 150,000 per year, which represented, according to him, a quarter of all master's degrees. Um, there is something to be said for just there's too many MBAs, there's too many lawyers. I mean, like everybody wants to be a manager, but nobody wants to be a worker. Okay, so that's one problem. Another problem is that, and I talk about this a lot in you know places on these podcasts that we do. Doing everything on a spreadsheet is is really missing again a lot of nuance, a lot of uh, I mean quality is something that is very difficult to measure. By the way, too, uh, you can measure defects very easily. Like if something has a specification in manufacturing, and you know it's it's not working. Okay, there's a defect. Then you can minimize defects. But you can't, you can't on a spreadsheet tell if your quality is maximized because quality is, is very a, a subjective. It's very kind of uh, emotional in many ways because... It's very look, qualitative as opposed to quantitative. Yes, and you look at a beautiful car. Uh, wh- wh- why does a Ferrari sell for a quarter million dollars and a Fiat sells for 15000 15, if you're lucky? 
I mean, the, the materials that went into it are pretty comparable, but the design and the color and the marketing and all this intangible stuff, you can't quantify it. Uh, so and there's a sort of logical uh, extension of the whole field of management science that, I mean, when this stuff was invented in the 1910s, like the natural extension is a fully planned economy. You have management science people come and talk about best practices. It's not facially a stupid idea to say like, well, every factory must follow best practices and we will allocate capital to the most efficient producer. And a lot of the time, what ends up happening is, like you were talking about um, the notion of measurability or in a political science context, uh, they call it legibility often. Uh, you end up with decisions and uh, even flows of concrete capital, um, to say nothing of human capital, that are dictated uh, by non-legible back channels. So you're assigned a task at maximum efficiency and you farm it out um, to someone else, um, you know, in kind of uh, invoking your favor bank uh, in order to meet your, uh, meet your quota um, through a process that ultimately you have uh, very little uh, control over if you're purely optimizing for um, the kind of uh, de jure uh, systems instead of the de facto systems. Yeah, I, I would say I don't think we've, for our audience sake, we've really explained what Taylorism is for somebody who maybe is coming in without any background or understanding of the topic. Well, I can um, I can offer a, a quick definition from uh, sure. Designing the Industrial State. This is actually a book that Nick had recommended to me uh, a long time ago, around the time that we did our episode on the Progressive Era, which I would I would actually recommend that you listen to that episode before you listen to the rest of this one, that episode develops a lot of our uh, a lot of our internal understanding of the rise of American bureaucracy, the rise of industrial progressivism in the United States, the rise of um, sort of a pseudo plant economy in the Gilded Age, uh, as Hank was mentioning. But uh, after the episode, Nick recommended this book, uh, Designing the Industrial State, the Industrial, the Intellectual Pursuit of Collectivism in America, by James Gilbert. And um, it's it's a hard-to-find book, hard-to-purchase book. I managed to get a copy. It's yeah, great. My, my copy is uh, is looks like something from the early 20th century. Yeah, my, the one I got, I think, is, is very used. It's beat up. Uh, the cover was falling apart, but uh, the pages inside are still pretty legible. Um, but uh, halfway through the book, Gilbert kind of gives a brief breakdown of what management science really is becoming, and um, talks about Taylorism very briefly. And this is his, sort of his, his explanation. Uh, a more sophisticated and widely hailed management plan for achieving a new industrial democracy was the efficiency movement. Scientific management, as explained by Frederick Taylor, was shortcut to increase production and industrial peace and a plan for harmonizing the antagonistic interests in the factory through a better use of space, time, and work. Taylor's plan, in other words, would place a boundary of science between corporate owners and managers. The special terms of this separation would benefit the managers and prevent the inefficient exploitation of factory labor. Although it was most famous for its time and motion studies, an anti-labor tool disguised as scientific objectivity, the idea of scientific management often received the sanction of high reform circles 
who saw it, theoretically at least, as a benefit to the workers. Louis Brandet, who did much to popularize Taylor's theories, expressed the highest hopes of many Taylorites before the United States Commission on Industrial Relations. To Brandee, Taylorism was simply the transfer of scientific and sociological methodologies from an abstract academic setting to the practical problems of factory management. As in science, methods of organization, classification, and experimentation could be applied to create rationalized work conditions. It presents in respect to existing industrial discontent the same sort of solution that the opening up of immense western lands presented to the problems of civilization 50 years ago. It was not any solution at all for the ultimate problem, but it gave a way out. And it seems to me that this is just what scientific management does here. Grandee denied that scientific management was sought to promote an industrial speed-up, as some unionists claimed. Instead, he argued, it was a way for the worker to assume a role in the management of business. This claim yeah, um, was um, the most surprising to me. Yeah, um, for the and again, for those who are, are listening and aren't sure anyways, the efficiency movement was late 1880s, 1890s, um, and it was exactly what it sounds like. It, increased efficiency in manufacturing. Um, Taylor was, by training, a mechanical engineer, and he indirectly created the field of industrial engineering, where he's the guy who initiated the process of taking stopwatches and people recording uh, what workers did on the workplace, um, measuring how long it took to perform tasks and how many resources were used to right. perform a task and then standardizing, he was known especially, or his, uh, his crew of consultants were known for standardizing down to the most minute detail um, how every job had to be done and benchmarks for what constituted success or not so that they could improve things. Um, part of what needs to be understood so, is uh, – one second. Part of what needs to be understood, though, is he also basically invented all the data that went into this in the early stage. So it's not just that uh, – Obviously, benchmarking and measuring things is important, but uh, in many ways, Taylorism was built upon you know whatever fictitious data he needed to create in order to justify his outcomes. And I could right. answer. Would you say it's a fair simplification to say that Taylorism is the application of scientism to the production process? Yeah, um, very much so. Right, and uh, this is one of the points that are brought up by some by organizational theorists who deal with later attempts um, to uh, basically handle these problems of complexity. Um, it was extremely reductionist and linear in its approach. Um, and part of the problem with teaching a very reductionist approach is complex processes, even if they're in a very regimented, um, you know, documented way, just measuring everything in a reductionist manner does not necessarily give you a full image of the uh, the sum of their parts, and that was one of the uh, the bigger problems that comes out of Taylorism. Well, in in our Progressive Era episode, I, I want to kind of bring the viewers back to this subject just a little bit. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, and management or managerialism was not really a, a potent force within the United States. There were managers. Uh, I guess there were sort of uh, business hierarchies or, or state hierarchies, but it was not a clearly defined role, and it was sort of an assumptionary role that you would have to just perform. There was no direct training for that specific purpose. Uh, there was 
uh, not to interject, but in many cases, many of these organizations, there wasn't a the uh, the firm distinction between owners and management that we later saw, uh, where in many cases when you, you first started to see managers before managerialism came along, it tended to be somebody in the extended family of the owners, even if it was a publicly traded corporation who was Cor- the managers. Correct, because the corporate or business sector of the United States and, and the Western world is very diffused at that point. It had a large decentralization uh, component. Uh, There was really no ability for a lot of centralization to even function properly. The first attempt at it was, uh, I guess, really a large-scale attempt was uh, the East India Company, which had some impact on later sort of economic and management sciences, but not nearly as much as what we see well into the Industrial Revolution, especially in the late 19th century United States. By the time in you know, the early, early uh, 1880s rolls around, we, we discussed this. The, you see the beginnings of, what was it, the American Economic Association. And you see the beginnings of the Gilded Age. And at the time, as Hank was mentioning, you kind of start to see what is the beginnings of a planned economy. But instead of a Soviet-style planned economy, there was essentially a collection of I think what we we would call now oligarchs, although at the time they were referred to as industrialists or just simply as uh, the business owners. Most of these these are household names to this day in the United States, and these men um, would often find ways to reward the best ideas with capital investment. The capital investment was actually not very diffuse at the time, uh, despite the most of the American business community remaining very diffused, and so. The best ideas are the ideas that attracted the most attention towards these people that they felt were worthwhile to their interests, typically got funding. Along with the establishment of uh, institutions like the Wharton School in 1881, which was technically created to produce businessmen and statesmen alike, and it didn't differentiate them in its early training and its early education. Yeah, it, uh, no, again, I'm stepping into you, but, uh, the original impetus for creating higher education schools for businessmen was made to copy the uh, the efforts to create schools for uh, foreign service officers. Interesting. For- That's that brings up my question, which was, what was the relationship? Uh, what relate rather? What relationship did these applications of material science principles have on the academic establishment in uh, America? Um. I, was it Hans who was speaking? I, I can jump in on that once you finish your current. Um, yeah, I mean, coverings. as we mentioned, you know, the American Economic Association was definitely the first aspect of that, Nick, where basically this the scientism had already begun to infect many or proto managerialist educational institutions. A lot of the early research into economics as a science was basically funded by American industrialists. And it was developed mostly as a way to create a national economic policy. Whatever you know, whatever you can say about these people, in hindsight, that they were actually had a coherent policy. They had a coherent strategy for what American industrial output would be and how to manage it, not just at a business level, but on a societal level, at a cultural level, uh, at an immigration level, at a demographic level. All of it, in their mind, could be managed, should be managed for a better outcome for them and perhaps for the people below them as well. Nowadays, yeah. you know, the, this new era of managerialism, especially in the post-war era, 
the educational institutions and the academic elite become very infused with training up people to become managerialists, but it's not part of any sort of really managed coherent strategy. It yeah. seems it seems to be much more cordial and much much less formal than it used to be. Well, it it's just the nature of the economy. Well, you're also covering or glossing over some of the most interesting stuff that occurred prior to the Second World War. Um, so to begin with, what was it? Harvard Business School was created in, was it 1910 or whatever? Um, Taylor eventually becomes a, uh, a faculty member in 1913, two years before his, his death. Um, an interesting story about Harvard Business School is they had an endowment from an alumnus, somebody who had passed away, uh, left a huge amount of money to Harvard Business School, or excuse me, to Harvard University with the mandate that it could only be used to create a new school of, a uh, new higher education, a new graduate level school of sciences. Um, at that point, Harvard University got the great idea to say, well, you know what? Business is now a science. Um, and they essentially convinced Taylor to join their faculty in order to uh, turn it into an academic field. Um, though, yeah, as you said, Wharton School had begun earlier, though it was a, essentially a dual purpose, a, a, states, a statesman, something like a, a master's of public administration program in addition to being a business school. But uh, Harvard essentially became the first, you know, all business school in the country in that process. Um, there was a great amount of support between Taylorists, the uh, the managerial schools like Harvard and Wharton, and uh, efforts to plan the economy both in the United States and abroad. Uh, Vladimir Lenin said uh, explicitly that Taylorism was, he said, is part of the necessary process of or of centrally planning or centralizing and collectivizing the economy of the Soviet Union. So there were management consultants, um, people who were Taylorist graduates of uh, the you know the earliest business schools, as well as some of the faculty of business schools who were involved with the uh, the collectivization efforts of the uh, the Soviet Union. Um, so, just as Hans' point was, this is not uh, even though they were often in the service of private corporations. This think that they somehow had a a private or a commercialist bent as opposed to a uh, a state. Has spent. It's like that was the opposite. What they really saw was centralization and efficiency versus, you know, the status quo, which w was inefficient. You did see a trickle back, though, because around about this same time in the kind of immediate post or pre World War II era, you began to see these managerial principles be applied for the first time to higher education itself. So you had the emergence of things like standardized testing for admissions. Um, the notion of a grade point average um, being the most salient. Um, not necessarily, I mean, they, they sort of justified themselves in uh, egalitarian and progressive terms, not uh, in a way to like, you know, students is our product or like education is our product. Yeah. But it became very easy then to layer that on when the zeitgeist shifted um, towards yeah. the sort of uh, productionist model of education. Yeah, and again, I would make the point that it maybe in the popular American consciousness post World War II is when it became, um, you know, present. But um, understand that it it had begun in the United States in higher education and uh, the government sector much earlier than that. I mean, the the earliest standardized tests. Um, began, you know, right around World War II in the United States. That's when the first attempts at intelligence testing had began and the attempts at classifying people 
um, you know, the human resource approach based upon their their competency and backgrounds. Um, with you know a greater emphasis towards standardizing what was meant by a university or a college, or you know even secondary education in the United States, because people forget that the up until the turn of the 20th century, things like colleges and university were not always synonyms, and even the definition of what is a college or a high school or a university wasn't always standardized. Um, so it began earlier there, even if it didn't reach or didn't enter the uh, the consciousness of that. Um, but that also needs to be understood is Taylorism, uh, the sort of scientific or scientistic, as uh, Nick pointed out, approach to managerial sciences, it was also in the wane after like 1915 or so. And, you know, you see subsequent waves of approaches towards teaching managerial skills with uh, later a human resources approach and then, you know, an another or a series of waves of um, how the discipline was seen. You said it, it started to wane after 1950? 1915. Um, 15. That's the Taylorism. Taylorism, the peak is generally seen to be about 1910. 1913 is when he joined uh, the curriculum, hmm. or excuse me, the faculty of Harvard Business School, um, you know, essentially making, you know, Taylorism an academic discipline. Again, even though it was based on you know just made up data, but 1915 is when he had passed, and uh, that's it's also seen as a major turning point in which his ideas started to wane. Well, it's interesting. Uh, one of his contemporaries was Henry Ford, and in this book, uh, apparently Ford was somewhat skeptical of Taylorisms or Taylor's ideas. Now, the way I interpreted that was basically just Ford as kind of being his curmudgeon self and kind of wanting nothing to do with outsiders. I mean, he generally disliked accountants and uh, consultants in general, and he wanted to run things the way he wanted to run them. But if you look at how Ford operated, I mean, he was very much a tailorist, in my opinion. He basically sought to standardize every operation on the assembly line. He, he applied the assembly line to the automotive process. He didn't invent it, but he basically borrowed it from the, uh, the meatpacking facilities in Chicago, and he noticed all these hooks going around with these butchers, you know, working on the pig as it goes down the line. And he's like, well, I could do that with cars. And he basically sought to improve efficiency and make things simpler so that things can go faster on a weekly, monthly basis. So I don't see a that, real difference. Well, yeah, well, again, he, he was definitely influenced by the efficiency ideas, even if it wasn't Taylor's specifically. Because, again, Taylor wasn't so much the, uh, the first person to do this as he was the guy who essentially convinced everybody yeah. it was a science and we should take him seriously. Um, one of the points that's brought up when you start doing the history or historiography of how management sciences are taught is that uh, Taylorism was – one sense predicated on the idea that efficiency was the most important aspect, as in this should basically be the sole focus for managers within you know a factory level right. environment. Well, one of the things that's missed is, out of go ahead. Go ahead. Wow. Well, I would say if one of the problems is, is that's not necessarily the same thing as the most profitable or the most right. effective at accomplishing your job. Because um, if you're all if you're looking at efficiency above all else, that doesn't mean you're necessarily turning the profit or filling a key. Well, what's one of know, my big critiques there. of the American business culture is that it is obsessed with the bottom line, and and that's not wrong in a capitalist system. But the problem is I think it's very short-term oriented, and this is a very old critique of the way Wall Street motivates managers, is that they basically give them these massive payouts for 
increasing the stock price and the guy just basically bolts and you saw this with a lot of the um I mean, in particular, in the 80s, when a lot of these corporate raiders were buying up all these companies, uh, loading them up with debt, slashing divisions, costs, everything basically to pay off the debt. And then they'd, they'd eliminate their debt, which they didn't actually contribute to on their own capital. They basically borrowed it all to begin with. So they, they offload their liabilities onto the company. They slash the, the, the cost to the bone, lay, lay off all these divisions and people. And then they, they gut all the R&D and the future investment uh, that the company needs to grow in the future. So it's very short term. And then they flip the company uh, once they've sort of grown the sort of profits in the short term. But then the long term viability of the company uh, is very poor. Uh, mm-hmm. Mitt Romney did this with uh, a lot of the companies that he worked on at Bain Capital. <laughs> and if you look at the yeah. companies that the guys in the 80s bought, I mean, none of them are like known as like major corporations anymore. Uh, a lot of these yeah. books too that come out about like how to make a company great. Very few of them actually sustain that. So it's, it's kind of a, it's very difficult to call this stuff a science. I mean, it's, it's very much an art. Well, it's, well, it's not a science. And that's one of the things Matthew Stewart makes is first off, it's not based upon consistent reproducible evidence. It's not a science. Um, now, saying it isn't a science doesn't mean that business shouldn't be taught in schools to some degree, that there shouldn't be schools yeah, of higher education to teach that. It's a complex but it, system. The, by, it's not a repeatable yeah, system. Yeah. Yeah. But I was saying by, by calling it a science when it's demonstrably not, in many ways that uh, it's it's wrapping it in the cloak of you know legitimacy and sacredness that prevents people from making those kind of critiques. Um, as you said, that issue that uh, Wall Street especially, right, a lot of the incentives for publicly traded corporations encourages the management of those businesses to have a very short time horizon view of an organization. Whereas, again, for the largest organizations, you want people who can think strategically, meaning five years out at minimum. Um, whereas generally that doesn't happen to any degree in a company where you know quarterly earnings statements drives who gets promoted and who gets fired. You want to hear something funny? I, I always cite the Japanese as kind of the antithesis of the American Wall Street culture. Uh, and even for me, this was like, um, I, I had to laugh out loud. There was, um, there was a video that somebody showed me of this company that was, uh, was trying to be some kind of tech company in Japan. And the guy said, <laughs> and Nick might like this. Uh, they were trying to create a a, a thousand year company. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, hey, you know there are uh, like four different Japanese com- uh, corporations that are over a thousand years. Well, yeah, that's the other thing. I was going to bring that up because like if uh, you well, the Zaibatsu system itself, yeah, is well, the, the Kikoman yeah. like soy soybean conglomerate or whatever, like they've been around for like eight hundred years. I mean, it it really is kind of funny. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, the thousand-year comparison—we know what it, it's joking about. But yeah, being the wet blanket here, I mean, they literally have you know multiple corporations that are older than that. They've got one that's at least twelve hundred plus years old. So it, uh, as you said, though, I mean, there's something in the Japanese culture that makes that possible. Whereas in the Anglo-American culture, the only companies that really have long-term, you know, multi-generation. Uh, perspective on their industry are family-owned businesses that does you know it does not happen in publicly traded firms of any sort and a lot of yeah exactly a lot of private companies there's a lot of uh, agriculture concerns energy companies to a degree uh, commodities companies i mean i don't know like what what's the oldest oldest 
public company in the United States, General Electric? I mean, I'm trying to think. It's like... I don't well, know. I have, I have a question along these lines. So it is an interesting and ironic thing that cloaking this uh, discipline or practice in the terminology of science in some ways immunizes it to empirical validation on its own. I mean, was this something that... Taylor had set out to do to legitimize the practice get to, or is this a consequence of it? Well, he was um, a salesman. He was trying to sell his consulting business. So he yeah. wanted to make it as credible as he could. Yeah. He, yeah. So he, for him, it was essentially about, you know, it was to say distinguishing his company and making it profitable, you know, as the most unique market niche or market, you know, market, um, opportunity or whatever making himself unique in that sense um a lot of what wrapped the uh, the cloak of science around him that made people believe it at, despite the fact that taylor said that for years was essentially the creation of harvard business school and dedicated schools of business because i mean as soon as you start having you know academia and you have journals and you have you know people who are tenured in these fields and phds in these fields you know it suddenly becomes a lot harder to pretend or a lot harder to point out that it's not a science can we can we talk about one of the um the other sort of gurus of the the business consulting world uh michael porter uh if you're familiar with him Menken. he is a he is a, a total idiot his company at a business. I wouldn't call him an idiot. I'd no call him buys a bit of a charlatan, anymore. perhaps. But yeah, there's actually. I'm glad you brought it up because there's an article I sent to someone maybe about two weeks ago from the New Yorker. It was written five years ago, called the Disruption Machine, and it basically details the the fall of Michael Porter and how basically the entire business community realized this guy is full of shit. And he really only, if you go to business school, which I had the unfortunate pleasure of, of spending a good deal of time in, uh, he's still taught as if he is the bread and butter of modern corporations. But when you, you realize that no one cares what he has to say anymore, yeah, his own consulting company went out of business because no one cared what he had to say anymore and felt his ideas were, if not outdated, totally wrong. Hmm. Yeah, it... I would say that is a common trend in business schools, right? That they uh, they base things on outdated information. There are one I, can argue again, most schools do it that way. <laughs> yeah, except in the cases of business schools, it's again we're talking about the ruling class of the 21st century being told things are demonstrably wrong that they go out and implement in the field. You know, it, one of my favorite things is we would go or we had modules on finance, you know, essentially how do you play the stock market? Um, because again, a lot of people, essentially you get an MBA in order to go be a, you know, a wall street trader. Never mind the fact that we're talking about a degree that's supposed to teach you how to manage people. It has yeah. nothing to do with well, trading. It's not stuff. necessarily a trader, but an investment banker, which is basically glorified yeah. sales. Exactly. Right. Um, so it's those kind of things. But, you know, and you would always look at these strategies that are theoretically scientific and, you know, designed to win. And I remember asking professors, so does anybody do it this way? And his response to one of them was, yeah, I did it this way. Then I lost all my money. So I'm here now teaching. Um, A rare moment or, of, of candor. 
Yeah, and my other one, it's uh, anything that gets down to organizational psychology or, or, you know, or leadership theory is there's a lot of, believe it or not, just Freudian psychology in those. Never mind that, mm. you know, Freud's psychoanalytic school has essentially been debunked as, you know, completely lacking in any hard evidence. But, you know, debunked again, the ruling class. Yeah, but again, it it's still used as a foundation for, you know, a, mo- a large part of the knowledge imparted to, again, the global ruling class, because, you know, they don't like to, you know, change any of their premises, especially if it, uh, you know, no matter what evidence from what other schools, you know, have demonstrated that's incorrect. Well, and this is something that I think people... It's easy to look at uh, what a lot of these consulting firms do and say, okay, this is transparently bullshit. All of these people must be idiots. Or at least they have some sort of uh, ulterior motive or they're not playing the game that they're describing playing. And I think that's really exactly it. Like When you have a really large company, like really large um, in terms of revenue or employees, you end up with all of these little fiefdoms where you've got maybe like, you know, I don't know how many vice presidents Walmart has, but I'm sure it's like well over a dozen. And then you've got the regional guys and so on and so on. And they all have their own kind of pet metrics and they all have their own things that they're prioritizing. They're all trying to make themselves look good. And there's often like two or three different guys that you can put in charge of any initiative that's remotely quote unquote transformative. So what I see a lot is that you'll bring in management consultants the same way that you'll bring in uh, oh I don't know a a bunch of uh, a bunch of uh, uh, a bunch of Nigerians um, into Iraq because it's like look we're not from around here we don't give a fuck. We do what we're told, and uh, we're told to uh, restructure this area, uh, like X, Y, and Z. And then they leave, which is the great thing. Because if you put one of your own guys in charge of like, well, do we really want to be in, I don't know, the electric car market, then suddenly that guy forms a constituency. That guy has a strong case that, well, I did all the groundwork for this. Like, I should be the guy in charge of this. He's maybe trying to fudge the numbers on that basis. So the decision has already been made that we're going to do this or we're not going to do this. And the role of the consultant is to provide enough analysis so that the CEO can go to the board and say, you know, we think this is a fantastic uh, opportunity. And I didn't just like pull this out of my ass. Like here's uh, these guys as a gut check, a very expensive gut check. Yeah. Um, and they also, you know, with their MBAs, think that it's a great idea. And it doesn't yeah. matter if the analysis is correct or not. Um, it served its purpose. Stewart says that explicitly in the book in a number of places that mm-hmm. a huge amount of what he did at uh, God, whatever. He was, at a, he was he talking was about at, a bank. He was at quite a bit. And oh yeah. I mean, like Hank says, it's like you you bring in this outside team that has some patina of credibility or objectivity, I should say, as opposed to being an insider who has a political fiefdom and a sort of axe to grind and there's there's rivalries. No, you bring in guys who, as Hank eloquently put it, don't give a fuck and basically just say what the business case is and 
the the theory is that the board then can look at that and say this is an objective take as opposed to all these sort of people I can't trust in my inside my own company. And, and this is sort of the beginning of like where people who don't like consultants would start to critique it. It's like why would you why would you give all this sort of um, time and money to these guys that basically don't have any skin in the game in the company. They don't care about the long-term viability. They're basically just trying to sell their consulting services to you and try to look yeah. smart in the process. So who the hell does he know? Some kid, you know, out of, uh, out of business school, he doesn't know this industry. I've worked here for 30 years for God's sake. So this is like the counter argument to it. Um, yeah. And, and obviously there, I mean, not all consulting firms are created equal and some of the ones that are better in particular industry actually do give a fairly objective analysis. Um, generally, they're not the biggest or the most profitable companies because you don't get a whole lot of repeat business if you make a habit of telling people what the data shows, um, you know, regardless of whether or not they want to hear that. Um, so yeah, very often that it's Stuart said explicitly, a lot of the things they did dealt with a, um, there would be a new administrative regime within a corporation, a new CEO who wanted to change the strategic focus of the, uh, the business and, um, you know, consultants were brought in basically to convince the employees or middle management to do things the way the, uh, the boss wanted to do it because now they had all the evidence in the world that, uh, you know, saying that he was right all along. Um, one of the things that stra- you know stands out that I thought in Stewart's book that was really funny is he talks about the Pareto principle and you know the uh, excuse me customers who produce oh, the bulk of your revenues. Yeah, well, <laughs> and he he talks about that and they basically have a three tier category of co- you know companies or clients that produce the bulk of your income revenue, the ones that produce you know some the revenue whales. and yeah. and those who produce essentially none and they're his companies basically told everybody those guys who are the uh, the 20% producing the bulk you need to have all those clients which again for any person who's been in any kind of volatile industry in the world the first thing you would say is doesn't that mean you're much more exposed to risk because now if there's any shock in the industry at all you're basically yes. going to bear 100% of the shock you know yeah but, and uh, it's just it's again it's like this static model it's like oh okay I have a hundred customers. I'm going to pick the top 20. Like, well, okay. Some customers leave. Some customers like have things like word of mouth that they spread the word. I mean, as long as each customer is profitable to me, that's basically where you draw the line. You know, it doesn't exactly. have to be like the most profitable and then you like ignore everybody and else. You, you have these situations where they, they are brought in specifically to fire customers like fraud. Fraud yeah. consulting is a huge huge industry and these aren't like you know they are mercenaries but they're not brought in for any sort of grand strategic insight it's a game of whack-a-mole of like which of my customers are going to screw me uh and that's i mean if you can get rid of those guys honestly you don't need to worry about optimizing and like gutting the middle 60 percent of your business or however you slice it that's why you have your you know your white glove service um to split those out yeah, and like I said, by focusing on that the twenty percent or whatever who are the bulk of your customers, it uh, like I said, it's the opposite of what somebody like Taleb would say. It's also like the opposite of you know basic your grandfather who had been in business thirty years. You know, wisdom would say is don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't expose yourself to all the risk on these things. And the customer and is it, always right. It's like this old adage: like you don't insult customers. It's like some guy is giving you four million dollars. 
and you're like, sorry, my consultant said you have to give me four million and one. You're no longer uh, persona. That's the uh, the heckler and cock uh, model right there. Yeah, it it's and it's a good way to ensure that a lot of those customers who are the bulk of your revenue go somewhere else. Just because, as you said, I mean, yeah. if you if you no fuck loyalty. your customers, they're not going to hang around. It. Exactly, and um, and it, not to mention the old issue of long-term planning, long-term vision, long-term understanding. As you said, some companies, you know, will be you know huge, profitable centers. You know, maybe even the bulk of your profits one year, but not the next. You know, some fields are extremely volatile. You know, anything that consumes fuel, petroleum products, is extremely volatile because it depends on so many other industries and how they uh, they need fuel. So it's, as you said, it's a very static way of looking at industries that are incredibly dynamic yeah. in multi. I, I think there there are like a few exceptions to this rule. Like the one that comes to mind again, it's like Ferrari. It's like they're, they're notorious for like, uh, we only make 400 a year of this car and you have to wait two years to get one. Um, and if you can't, sorry, you're, you know, you're not, you're not rich enough basically. And they, they do that intentionally because it creates an exclusivity and a, a sort of a, a desire for a very rare product that would otherwise basically just be another rolling box down the road if they basically tried to sell to every possible person that wanted a Ferrari and they command premium pricing. But there really are very few businesses that have the luxury of doing that. I mean, this is a very exceptional company that they have this, this brand that is just, it's, it's very emotional appeal. Most things that people buy. Yes. Today we live in a very silly civilization where most of our basic needs are met, obviously, but people buy things because they think they need them. They're not buying them to make a huge statement. You know, you buy a shirt because yes, you know, you want to look decent, I guess, but you're not, you're not like craving, you know, a lot of things that you buy. And so it's a commodity at that point. And you're basically, you're, you're making decisions on price and there's just much higher volume in that case. And you can't, you can't disrespect your customers. People remember that shit, especially in the service-based industry. Like you go to a restaurant, I mean, you can't kick people out the door because they don't like look rich enough. I mean, that just doesn't work. (laughs) It's like, oh, you'll have water, will you? Get the fuck out. Because they're not, they're not coming back and God knows how many of those people may come back or have been consistent, you know, business. Yeah. And they'll tell people, you know, the guy who runs this place is a jerk. So your business it's dies. like that uh, it's like that scene in LA story where Steve Martin has to make uh, reservations at the restaurant mm-hmm. like weeks in advance and so he goes there and then they go through all his like tax returns and then he's they're like well you know if you're granted a reservation uh, what might you order he's like eh, I might have the duck you cannot have the duck yeah nice. yeah well anyways that's what you're, you're also you're also fluffing the client when you talk about some of these particular strategies, because I mean, you do have examples of industries where you make all of your money at the bottom end, like uh, think anything that caters to the poor, really uh, things like uh, payday loans um, in a large part uh, the, uh, the grocery market. I mean, a lot of these things are kind of exploitive, but it's huge chunks of the, uh, the American economy. And you flatter your clients by talking about how, oh, I have a, a new visionary uh, industry for you to get invested in, or have a really cool uh, company for you to buy, or you know, you, you guys are all fancy guys. You should really only uh, sell your services to other fancy guys. It you get uh, very little 
uh, very little brownie points for saying, look, we ran the numbers and uh, we're pretty sure the shit is going to hit the fan in like five years. So uh, you might want to build some concrete bollards in front of your bank and uh, just kind of sit on this cash, maybe get a shotgun. Like nobody, nobody pays for that kind of a story. And ultimately you are selling a narrative. This brings me a question. Um, what, which specific industries or production processes was the Taylorist principles first applied to? Heavy manufacturing. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it begins with the Bethlehem Steel. So it was he was primarily concerned with the transfer and shipping of of um, steel in the beginning. So pig iron, but uh, like I said, not the production of pig iron, but the transfer of pig iron from one point to another. Yeah, he studies quick. this guy. I forgot his name, but it was it was like a Schmidt, I think, of some German guy. And <laughs> yeah. This yeah. poor poor guy. I mean, he was like he was basically an ox. Like his job was like he he had no brain. Apparently, he would just he would just do what yeah. he's told, and then he'd go home and he continued working on his house or something. And he just he just didn't he didn't have he didn't ever question why he had to do anything. He would just do it. Yeah. And he tried to get this guy to like do it differently so that he'd be more productive and like it didn't work. Uh, and he was studying this man because he was trying to get him to like pick up more pieces of steel per hour. That was his objective. And it goes on and on about like how he's like obsessing about Schmidt, but it's things like that. Like, you know, can you, can you load more, you know, pig iron yeah. to the car box car per hour stuff? Except Schmidt did not exist, and all of the data associated with Schmidt was invented. Yeah. There were actually yeah. investigative reporters who went through the city and <laughs> basically pulled up the uh, the records of every person who had lived in the uh, this you know in that town at the time. And apparently, there wasn't even a Schmidt in the town. But <laughs> that's the one he was talking about. So. And you do see cases where there's like legit insights. Uh, there's a I don't have the name of the study, but it was basically let's go on safari to India uh, and uh, take all these uh, fresh-faced uh, MBA. I think they were still students at the time, and instead of doing case studies for I don't know whichever local businesses they make them uh, pair drop into and try to uh, give them advice, they looked at small uh, textile producers in India. And a lot of the advice was very, uh, very actionable, very good. Uh, it was things like, hey, maybe you should have an inventory system. Like, yeah. you know, on paper, whatever, but keep track of how much product you have of each kind. Maybe you should have a price list so that people don't have to interrupt you uh, when they try to get a quote from something. And in their telling, and, you know, with all of the, uh, various scandals going on in academia uh, it's difficult to believe a hundred percent of uh, just so stories like this but i mean there's a reason why these kinds of innovations exist or why like yeah. there's the notion of best practices that is a is a real thing yeah and i mean it's like i was saying earlier there is the fact that it it's bullshit to say that management is a science doesn't mean that uh, management shouldn't be studied, or that uh, you know the process of business education shouldn't exist in you know some format. Um, the kind of process you were talking about, the kind of projects that most MBA programs nowadays have an overseas module you have to complete, and you'll do you know consulting projects for clients in whatever country you go to. We I was in Greece when we did ours, and it, again, it kind of amounts to us giving advice to businesses in a country we've never been. So it's it can potentially be good advice, but a lot of it's you know useless. But um, how did you find there's your, a lot the of reception there? If you don't mind my asking, from the clients. Um, 
Well, in this case, because it was done in partnership with uh, the Dutch embassy in Athens, Greece. Uh, so they had previously cultivated the clients who were more than happy to get business advice for free. Um, one of the things that is actually lost is uh, the United States and the other Anglo countries are about the only places in the world that have things like MBAs. Understand that uh, Germany, Japan, most of the other industrialized world does not have or have very few uh, MBA type programs. And in yeah. most industries, most manufacturing, it's primarily engineers who fill their managerial roles. Yeah. So, you know, the guys of Greece, because these are guys who previously came to the, uh, the association, you know, seeking the help and uh, the fact that, you know, we were business students in a country that doesn't really do that at all. Yeah. Um, they were receptive. Uh, well, some of the advice Greece gave them, in I, particular just, has had so many problems over the past 10 years in their economy. It seems like they would be open to a relatively strong uh, economy-based consultant coming in and recommending things. But if you go to a country like the two that you just mentioned, and these are the two countries that were cited the most often in the 80s about being you know, alternate models to the American business model, um, as you just said, the, a, lot, a lot of their leadership is, uh, is engineering-based. The, the car company uh, Daimler, Daimler-Benz, used to be Daimler-Chrysler until Fiat bought it uh, after the financial crisis, uh, there, I don't know if he's still the CEO, but it was, uh, Dieter, uh, Dieter Schwetz or something like that. It was this German engineer and they, it was, it was kind of a failed marketing campaign in America. But when, uh, Daimler bought Chrysler, they tried to put like this really kind of avuncular goofy looking guy with like the glasses and the big walrus mustache on these advertisements talking about German engineering and American innovation together at last. And it was, uh, it was really kind of a lead balloon for a lot of people in America because they're like, what, what is this weird kind of guy, you know, staring at me on this billboard for, but in Germany, they love that stuff. Like they like to know, like, They'll address you by uh, air, you know, Mister or a doctor, you know, and and this guy was a doctor in some sort of uh, you know engineering field, and that's the typical sort of management. Like Jack Welsh was the sort of exception in America. He had a chemical engineering degree, uh, and he was the CEO of General Electric. But most of these guys, like they 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 don't have the engineering background. And if I can take one more example where this sort of became very apparent, Ford Motor Company was the only American auto manufacturer not to take a government bailout after the financial crisis. And they were led by the guy from Boeing, who is, who is an engineer, uh, who turned Boeing around or actually led one of their major divisions uh, to consistent success in kind of large uh, commercial aircraft manufacturing. He went to Ford and he did a lot, a lot of good things at Ford. Uh, and his sort of background was in direct contrast to his successor, Mark Fields, who only lasted a couple of years. And I, I couldn't stand Mark Fields from the beginning because this guy's uh, way of carrying himself, like basically when uh, Alan Mulally, the guy that took over Ford before Fields, um, he came in to sort of, you know, do all the sort of one-on-ones you do as a new CEO and talk to all the, the top managers. He actually had to convince Mark Fields to move to... Detroit or Dearborn, technically where Ford is located, uh, to assume his role as I think it was CFO or something like that. It was basically a subordinate role to the CEO position uh, from Florida. And what he was doing before that was he was like flying back and forth on the company dime on private jets from his home in Florida. And I'm like, this guy's a you know the company's in trouble. 
And this guy is spending private jet hours and on the company dime so he can sort of have his like nice villa or whatever uh, in Miami or, or Fort Lauderdale. I just thought that was so disgusting the way he was sort of behaving. And then immediately as he, he took over, he's Jewish, by the way, um, he, um, he tried to move a lot of the factories to Mexico. And this is what Trump was complaining about. This is the guy. And he has an MBA from Harvard. He doesn't have. You didn't even have to background. preface that he was Jewish. I mean, as soon as he said he has an MBA from Harvard and he tried to move factories to Mexico, I just assumed that he was of the Talmudic faith. Yeah, you can make that assumption <laughs> oftentimes, but it's not a hundred percent. There's a lot of. I do have a question. Have uh, it may be a different direction, but I, <clears throat> I was curious how these principles, uh, scientific management, Taylorism, found their way into the American war machine. Uh, both in the war production process, it was, it was sick read, read the free book "Operations Research in the Second World War." It is a government publication. It is freely and legally available. It's a fantastic read if you're at all interested in this. Yeah, so, it. it uh, yeah, go ahead. Because I would, I would look to someone like uh, Robert McNamara as yeah. the ultimate creature of this process. Um, yeah. Could you explain this uh, to me, Menken, please? Uh, um. During the Second World War, um, it, it was a multi-factor process. Part of it was the a lot of it was the manufacturing process. Um, American industry, the ability to basically overnight turn into a you know a large-scale effective production machine for war materials, basically gave them a lot of carte blanche. In terms of the military itself, where you see the uh, the beginnings of you know scientific management and Taylorism. Um, a lot of it uh, with people like McNamara began with uh, the U.S. Army Air Force and how strategic bombing was um, calculated. Because um, a lot of the problem during that time is you had no effective reconnaissance on the ground. So after you bombed a target, there was no real way to measure the effects of uh, weapons. So a lot of it was based upon estimation based upon data, which again may have may not have been accurate data, um, in order to tell commanders whether or not what they were doing was effective or not. And the big, uh, the big area was the uh, attempted establishment of a convoy system where they basically ignored uh, the recommendations um, that everybody was screaming at them for multiple years and almost uh, you know, had a, a severe calorie problem as a result in the UK. Yeah, the, uh, the convoy system was interesting because it... Uh, for those who don't know, I mean, basically to prevent against being picked off by submarines, you would have a group of uh, merchant ships, cargo ships, would leave together with some kind of armed escort. And a lot of times armed personnel on the uh, the merchant cruise ship, um, cargo ships from point A to point B. Um, and again, it was just like any other convoy. You just had enough ships together. You would send out that as a convoy. The problem is, what it did is it was incredibly inefficient, which most people don't care if you're not getting food otherwise. But uh, it meant that a couple times a month you would have a major glut of supplies that came in and a huge difficulty getting those ships offloaded into warehouses and you know into whatever wherever they're going afterwards. And the rest of the the period you would have few of if any ships. Um, but as you said, because a lot of, there was a lot of attempt to keep ships going in individually. Um, in order to maintain our efficiency or maximize efficiency. But unfortunately, a lot of those ships also were destroyed in the process. They were hunted down by U-boats. 
Yeah, what, that's what a perfect the... example of an application where this sort of thing actually works because it's an open empirical question about do I want one big hard target that has a lot of variance in it or do I want a lot of little maybe higher risk but lower uh, variance uh, targets like that that answer is completely unclear until you run the numbers I agree to to what extent did the adoption of these principles in the actual conduct of war and dropping ordinance etc uh, distort the Political position of the managerial academics and the arms manufacturers. Well, I, I could I could jump in. Here. I mean, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so th- th- this is why America won. I mean, it, the as Mencken points out correctly, it was the manufacturing ability of America combined with the sort of Soviets who were modeling a lot of their stuff after the American system that defeated Germany. It, it was basically the sort of bespoke, obsessive engineering, but completely losing track of time and not producing enough that Germany basically couldn't keep up with the the oversupply of poor quality products. But nonetheless, you know, the quality uh, didn't make up for the lack of quantity on their end. And it was just the sheer number of goods that the American efficiency modeling produced that crushed the opposition. Uh, And Albert Speer, who was in charge of the armaments ministry uh, in Germany during the critical, most critical periods of the war for them, Uh, basically admitted this through his actions and somewhat through his speech. Uh, And he ran up against a lot of opposition because the people like Goebbels, who are much more ideological, basically say, oh, you know, German quality is going to win at the end, even though we can't produce the quantity. It just just didn't work out. You have to look at the numbers in the final analysis. Especially since, I was going to say, eventually they couldn't even produce the quality once their supply systems were disrupted. People forget that for much of the war, Germany effectively operated without a secure source of petroleum. That's really hard to run an industrialized economy and a mechanized army on without regular petroleum. I cut you off, sir. This, but this is basically the beginning of volume manufacturing, is what it's called. You can trace the roots of American volume manufacturing to Eli Whitney in in the cotton gin, Uh, but it, it is a thoroughly American idea and it's been part of the american business community uh up until world war world war ii it had been ingrained into american industrial processes for at least 120 years you know the united states was effectively built throughout the 19th century and especially in the later half of the 19th century and early 20th century on the back of what became volume manufacturing and then were sort of codified after the rise of mechanization, especially mechanized vehicles, into uh, what we kind of what we typically call the American system of manufacturing. Uh, it really the, the core piece of American manufacturing has always been the idea of interchangeable parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that was initially a musket design principle, and it was typically used uh, early on in the U.S. military as well as in the South for various agricultural processes. Uh, but then it you took call off. call it standardization it, in general. Yeah, you, call it, you can call it standardization. And then it took off. It, it became a huge component of the American, or the, I'm sorry, the Northern War Machine inside the U.S. Civil War. And it became a huge part of what we can kind of call the manufacturing golden age and the industrial golden age of both the Great Lakes regions and New England in the post-Civil War era, particularly in the Gilded Age and to... 1880s to 1930s, this huge efflorescence of 
not only management ideas to wrap around a lot of the manufacturing processes, but all new kinds of engineering sciences were being developed. Research and development expenditures were huge. Lots of factory management systems were developed. Lots of training programs were codified and were simplified across the United States. No other country was able to do this on a massive scale as the United States was. The UK was doing it to an extent. The Germans had it to an extent. The French somewhat. But no one had the, the volume of people that could actually do that. There were you know, tens of millions, if not 100 million people in the United States in some way or another at one point in this golden era involved in manufacturing. It was a massive it, part of the American it, it, experience. Yeah, and uh, one of the things, too, that factors in there, as well as the the Second World War, the Allies essentially blew up a large part of the industrial capacity of the world. Um, you know, Germany, the bulk of Germany's industry was actually in the East. A lot of it was dismantled wholesale and sent back to the Soviet Union. Um, much of Germany had just been bombed the shit out of them. You know, entire uh, factory districts were Yeah, they, they particularly targeted the ball-bearing factories uh, for, yeah. you know, some logical reasoning because basically if you don't have bearings, you can't really make vehicles. Uh, um, a lot of it is high-end precision equipment, uh, like components of uh, weapon spindles or a lot of aviation requires ball bearings. So if you can take out those ball bearings, what can happen is other factories can potentially machine alternatives, but uh, hand machining alternatives is basically the opposite of mass production. So it's an incredibly inefficient and slow process. And and, and machining a ball, a perfect sphere or a relatively perfect sphere is, you can imagine how difficult that is. Not fun. Yeah, it's a lot easier to cut, cut a square than a sphere with with your hands so you do need specialized machinery or something like that and when we talk about interchangeable parts i mean it's not like nobody ever had this idea before it's just that if you actually try to do it you end up needing such an incredible amount of capital because the amount of precision that's required to make sure that you know if you have a run of a hundred thousand parts that you know you have one or two that you discard that's an insanely tight distribution, which means you now need things like you have to calibrate all your tools. Your designs need to not require excessive precision as things wear. They need to wear evenly. And all of this just boils down the pipeline uh, until you need an incredible amount of human capital to figure out how this in practice works. Yeah, and, and I'll remind everybody that it wasn't until the 19th century that the uh, systems of measurement were effectively standardized. So you can't have precision measurement if you can't agree on what an inch is. Um, and at, which at that point is when they could actually produce very accurate measuring tools. So If I can uh, give an example you, of that, um, if you go into a small auto body f- fabrication shop and you tell them, you know, I need this gauge of steel, it really depends on what time period your car is from, what country it's from, because the Americans and the British use different systems. Um, so they, they, there's all these basically these arbitrary numbers assigned to basically physical distances in the terms of like thickness of, of a gauge of steel. And there's um, there's different types of gauges for different types of metal too. 
And so what Napoleon did, basically, he, he basically implemented the metric system and through him across Europe. What he did was basically he, he defined a standard of, of measurement that allowed the reconciliation of all these different systems into one. And it's, again, centralization and efficiency drive system that allows situations like this to not be an issue, which waste a lot of time. So you go into this, this place, yep. you're like, what gauge are you using? Okay, well, how many millimeters is that? Well, I don't know. Let me go look. You know, so it, it just it gets rid of all that. And that, that, that yeah. amount of waste that goes into having everybody do their own little thing, it, it just add, it adds up. And so this is why you know the, the yeah. efficiency argument wins when you're doing something like a war, which basically requires everything to be going in one direction as opposed yeah, it, to the, peacetime when you're the point that, innovating and things like that. The point that you have manufacturing, production, and logistics that are not co-located at the same place of the consumer is the point that you need precision. You know, the caliber of a bullet needs to be consistent. And uh, like I said, up until the 19th century, that, that had not been completely standardized, which is why... Um, into the 20th century, the the English customary standard of measurement that the United States had, there was minute differences in what a a mile was in Australia, in the United States, in Great Britain. Uh, you know, in those kind of mistakes, those kind of differences make you know things like logistics supply very difficult to perform. Yeah, and by the by the 60s operations research really becomes its own field. I mean, I know Hank mentioned it was predominantly created by the U.S. military in the Second World War. But by the 60s, just have this massive investment into sort of a post-American manufacturing system ideal where now there's all these analytical methods to uh, bring some of these ideas to banks and to electric utilities and to retail and so service management, service operations begin to grow sort of their own subfields of study and work. And this is sort of the, when we talk about the rise of managerialism and the rise of managerial sciences and technocracy, this is really what we're referring to is that suddenly similar credential principles are available, not just in one field, but across all fields. And they're sort of expected as part of the broader e economic management of the country. And you also yeah, need the physical ability to do the calculations involved. Right. Like statistics as a modern field did not exist at all until like eh, like the mid-20s, 30s. Like Fisher only started publishing his ANOVA, like analysis of variance. Like where are these errors coming from in uh, like 1920-something? And then even if you can theoretically do it, if you're talking about production on a vast scale, you're talking about a lot of different data points, which means that suddenly you need a computer in order to actually yeah. do all this stuff. Yeah, statistical yeah, calculations are very, I mean, they're not complicated necessarily, yeah. but they, they're tedious and you have to add up literally like tables of numbers. And so they yeah. used to call the women who did that computers literally because it was just just this repetitive tedious job of one plus four plus seven plus and you would have to do that for every little thing now we've got like basically supercomputers sitting on our laps and we can just have the computer do it for us and it's so much faster but back then you really you literally had to have the resources yeah. to have a team to, to calculate all this stuff yeah until the 1970s unless your company was 
rich enough to inform or purchase an IBM computer to do that. It was literally, like you said, people manually on paper doing those calculations. And even then when calculators and personal computers first came out, they were extremely expensive. Uh, electronic calculators averaged something like 700 or $300 each when they first came out in the 1970s. So to the oh. point about statistics, it's, it seems in retrospect, it's like, how hard can this can be? Well, it, it's a lot harder when you're doing everything manually. Well, thou, thou shalt not make a machine in the likeness of a man. But I, I was going to ask if uh, I, I asked previously about its application to the military. I'm now curious about the state itself, because to my mind, what is technocracy, if not the application of these types of principles to civil government? I think, for um, example, of people like Julian Huxley, et cetera, the various NGOs that pursue these avenues. Yeah, um, that's an interesting case, right? The military itself, and because that's part of obviously who I am professionally. Um, a lot of it, again, comes from the post World War II area in the era in uh, the carryover of bombing analysis and similar kinds of statistics. Um, I would say in the 60s and later, or excuse me, probably late 50s and later, you see an interest in. Um, those kind of business-related disciplines being fields that we wanted, we, mean the United States government, wanted officers trained in. Uh, John Boyd, who is an innovator in a lot of ways, is sort of like the opposite of the Taylorist approach. When he was sent back to school to get his degree, he was sent back for industrial engineering to you know, to be the kind of person who, do, 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 who does these kind of calculations because as a fighter pilot – that was the kind of technical training they wanted in somebody to eventually go and make him into, you know, somebody who can do the acquisitions and design of. Is this know, the, the Uda Uda Loop guy? Yeah, this is Boyd, who's a, a real you, interesting story. Go ahead. Uh, in the Amer modern American bureaucracies, do you see the lineage of Taylorism and application of civil government? Um, I would say in the military, especially. I think to a degree, to a large degree. Um. Especially if you use something like Bill Lynn's uh, Generations of Conflict, because uh, one of Lynn's arguments is he says that fundamentally the United States military is a second generation warfare agency that pretends to be a third generation or sometimes even a fourth generation entity. The second generation basically being industrialized central planning approach. Command um, and control. So the United States – go ahead, sir. Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse I just me. said command and control as opposed to – delegates and let them decide which is third generation yeah well not just that but it implies the kind of micromanagement that again taylor implemented and similar people implemented um that said it involves the kind of centralized planning control freak type approach that at the same time american culture the american military culture does not have the ability to implement effectively um in comparing the United States Army to the, the Wehrmacht in World War II, uh, Martin Van Creveld said that essentially the United States was the least effective country at central planning that decided to basically command an army by central planning, whereas the Germans were the, uh, the most effective at central planning and had a military doctrine that completely eschewed um, central planning. So, yeah, do you see those kind of Taylorist principles in the military itself? Indirectly. Um, we generally have, especially post-World War II, a, a military that gives lip service towards decentralization and initiative and over time has gradually absorbed huge amounts of uh, the mission command philosophy of the, uh, 
the German military, um, but continue, continues to have a zero defects, zero mistake approach so that uh, it produces a very brittle, I would say, you know, lockstep type organization, even when that's the least effective thing that might happen. Yeah, I mean, part of the things that people don't like about government is that there is a lack of uh, objectivity or metrics or uh, even concrete deliverables. Um, I mean, if anything, it's like every so often uh, you have a, a establishment GOP politician who comes in and is like, oh, we should run the government like a business. It's like, yeah, that, that's a cool idea, except for uh, all of the stuff that you're trying to manage exists not to do a thing, but to serve a constituency. Yeah. So the outputs are, are completely, they're not things that you can optimize for. Um, depends. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. Part of the problem is, well, fundamentally in the military is at every level, all reporting, um, most of the data comes from the person who's a subordinate sending up the data that he's graded against. And yeah, I can most tell you, of, I'm talking mostly about like civil governance. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, I mean, it's a similar issue, I think in many municipal type bureaucracies, but uh, my point is ultimately, if I'm the guy who has got to submit the, uh, the evidence, the uh, data, the hard data that I'm being graded against, I can tell you from experience, my dad, you know, my numbers are going to be amazing because I'm going to make them up because, Ultimately, a lot of things we always make them up. Um, so, can something hypothetically be measured potentially? But as uh, you know, Adam was saying earlier, um, you know, a lot of these things come down to qualitative differences. And how do you measure, you know, something that's qualitative in a quantitative manner? And generally, you can't, other than customer satisfaction surveys, um, which in business you may or may not be able to do, depending on your action. Um, not to mention the problem that. It's not just that things that get measured get managed. It's very easy to confuse the metrics, the things that you're paying attention to and tracking with the things that matter, especially if you have a changing environment where suddenly the way you do business changes over time. But the standards, the procedures, which were codified decades earlier, you know, force you to still you know, track things that don't matter. So I'm going to ask kind of a, a broad question here. Assuming we're living in sort of a technocracy where people who have the best credentials are awarded a lot of the power, uh, even though they don't have all the power, uh, obviously, um, is this a good thing? Is this an improvement? Is this progress, as they would say in the progressive fields? Or are, are we lacking something, maybe sort of the, the soul of a nation uh, in, in exchange for the automation and efficiency gains that we would get from regimenting everything? Um, is, is there something better that we could do? Or is it better than um, what we had? I can tackle this first. And one of the larger structural issues not even going into sort of the emotional or spiritual elements of why this might be an issue. The larger economic structural issue with uh, a growing managerialist system is that generally you arrive in a, in a sort of strange conundrum where you have a very highly educated on paper population or, or workforce 
but you've allocated so many of your resources and you've, you've oriented your society in such a way that it is basically built to manage. Most of the management systems in early managerialism was developed around an existing economic structure that was, uh, for lack of a better word, fairly anti-fragile. It had strong foundations. Manufacturing has been a part in, in one way or another of the human experience for thousands of years. So were a lot of the agricultural phenomena in the United States. Managerialism was developed as a way to manage that. It was never intended, as I think Alfred Chandler, who wrote, uh, who wrote a, a great book that we should review as the next episode, um, On the Rise of Managerialism in American Business, it was never intended as a self-fulfilling enterprise. It was mostly intended as a means of developing a national economic policy. The issue now is that it is essentially an industry in of itself. The management consulting industry is massive, and it, in one way or another, indirectly controls much of the day-to-day -day functions of the Fortune 500 companies and the U.S. government. Do these principles work? Seems like they kind of don't half the time. Um, does it seem like we're orienting ourselves towards an economy that is not structurally sound and does not have basic production principles? Yes. Eventually, we could arrive in, in a very problematic structural situation where the majority of the managerialist concerns around you know, the, the ability to actually manage corporations and to retain power will have to go uncorrected because there will simply be nothing left to manage. They will just be managing each other. Then it comes down to a situation, what does the United States do with a surplus managerial workforce? We're already sort of arriving at that problem. What do we do with a nation of middle managers? Well, you don't, no one really knows what you do with a nation of middle managers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ironically enough, a lot of the other industrialized countries don't have that problem because they didn't invest in MBAs or business schools the same way we did. Um, I, I more or less take uh, with Matthew Stewart, the, uh, the management myth, I take his conclusion, I more or less agree with. Um, one of his points is, again, it's not that he doesn't advocate for the training of managers. It says that all of what's done in academia to train, educate businessmen is fundamentally flawed because it has that veneer of scientism when it isn't. You know, there are obviously scientific aspects of uh, business administration, like accounting, conceivably, but uh, in many ways, it's also an art and maybe even an applied liberal art, arguably, and that, you know, aspects of traditional liberal arts are very essential to training leaders just in business the same way that it's necessary to train people in, you know, for war to be statesmen. So. I think that fundamentally what we have is a flawed paradigm that uh, doesn't see the problems in a realistic manner, which produces an education that is always going to be deficient. And that uh, unless they reframe what it is they're trying to teach in business school, it's, it's always going to fall short. Mm -hmm.